0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have in as our guest, Stephanie Greenberg, a seasoned and dedicated educator for over three decades. Stephanie is an educational therapist and the founder of Creative Learning Studio. Stephanie created Creative Learning Studio out of a deeply held conviction that every student has a potential to succeed and thrive. She and her staff focus on meeting the specific strengths and needs of each child and provide each student with individualized one-on-one instruction. She works with individual students and in small groups in her Los Angeles office as well as virtually, utilizing best practice techniques for remediating learning differences. Today, we discuss the role of educational therapists, their process, and how they can help move an individual forward in their educational journey. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks, Josephine. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So you are an educational therapist, and I think it's an important topic for us to address because I think a lot of people don't know what that is. I think you're
1: right. I think a lot of people sometimes are not sure if it's tutoring, if it's therapy, what it is exactly, but it's really the practice of, we provide personal remediation basically for students. And when I say students, I mean from children to adults. So there's a wide range of different learning differences that we cover. And really what we do is we use best practice techniques and programs to help address underlying difficulties. So a tutor would work more with just schoolwork and like helping a student get through a subject, for example, but we actually address the underlying issues.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's individualized
1: in terms of someone's needs, really. Exactly. And that's a big part of what we do is getting to know the individual using different, maybe sometimes we have neuropsych reports or educational reports, different information, and then formulating a plan for what areas we're going to work on and who we're going to work on them.
0: So you brought up a so neuropsych testing. So that's probably how I know about educational therapists, that I have patients that I maybe send to neuropsych testing. They get a diagnosis of ADD, ADHD, or some other sort of learning disability. And then often I think, but what's next? We know what the deficit is, but how do we fix it?
1: That's exactly what it is. So then we will take that report. And just to back up, the, the neuropsych piece is huge to have a neuropsych report because that definitely pinpoints the areas of difficulty. But then we do other types of things. Like I do other types of testing that sort of pinpoint where they are scholastically. So then we can guide instruction and then take those areas, whether it's dyslexia or reading comprehension or mathematics disorder or attentional issues. And then we use specific programs to target those. So neuropsychs are a huge partner for us in this process. But we do often get students or uh, even adults who don't have neuropsychs. And so, although we don't diagnose, we can give an idea of a direction that we need to go in educationally.
0: Got it. And also for the listener who maybe doesn't know what a neuropsych test is, should we explain it? Yeah. You explain. (laughs) Well, you might do a better job, but it's basically a test that someone would do. It may be a paper and pencil test in order to really determine how your brain functions right? And it compares, it compares your brain to kind of match controls within the same age and IQ range. And then basically gets a sense of, you know, where do you lie on kind of that spectrum of normal functioning and where are some parts that you're really struggling?
1: That's it. That's exactly it. And I always tell my students, you know, in a way it's a mirror, you know, you're kind of holding up a mirror to see how they learn. But I always remind them, I think that We're so fortunate now that we have those tools. I know when I was growing up, we didn't have anything like that to pinpoint any learning difficulties. And so nobody really knew how to address these things. And what's so wonderful now is with early remediation, I mean, I've had many students who were diagnosed with dyslexia and after a lot of work and dedication from both the practitioner and the parent and the student, all three. The kids kind of outgrow it. It's something that can really be remediated, which is amazing.
0: Right. And makes an impact in just self-esteem and anxiety and depression to be able to feel like you have a plan and you have a name for how you're struggling and you can kind of move through that.
1: And it kind of normalizes it too, because I feel like I know when I was young, I had some trouble with auditory processing, which is what we would say now. I, I didn't understand a lot of oral directions. But nobody really knew that about me. And and I would struggle so much with multiple directions or something the teacher would say. But now, you know, we can say, okay, so this is something that you that you need extra help with, and we can help. Mm -hmm. Really a different environment now. It's great. So I'm so curious what the tools are. Well, that's an excellent question. A lot of the tools that we're trained in are sort of the gold standard of all the different areas. Every educational therapist has different training. I was a teacher for a long time, so I was lucky enough to have almost 30 years of classroom experience. I've experienced a lot of different programs, been trained in a lot of different ones. Linda Mood-Bell is one of the really amazing ones for dyslexia. Orton-Gillingham is incredible for spelling. And a lot of these programs are linked to different types of therapies. So when you're teaching a student to read, for example the way to do it with these programs is through looking at how their mouth moves and what sounds do they make and do your lips make a specific motion? Do you feel air coming out? And you use a lot of different modalities to really stimulate their learning. And it's so incredible to have these programs because they give a student just a wider range of a way to learn.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So are they Electronic programs or how, how does an educational therapist work with someone with these programs?
1: I think they have those as well. In my practice and most of my colleagues, I think we still go with sort of the tried and true. And like I said, a lot of modalities. So even teaching students to write things in the air to be able to visualize spelling words is one example some of the math, you know, using concrete manipulatives and really making sure they understand those concepts before we try to make them memorize math facts. Mm. One difficulty that is kind of super prevalent right now is attention and executive functioning issues. And sometimes that's a little bit challenging to work with in isolation, but there's so many components that a student needs to be successful. So that's a, a big area that we work in as well.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think the listener might be curious about this part of educational therapy. What is executive functioning?
1: So executive functioning is, it's an umbrella term basically. And it's really, um it's a word for all of the functions that we need to be able to be successful. It's kind of like an orchestra, like you have a conductor and you have to kind of have all the instruments in line to be able to make beautiful music. So there's different ways to look at it. The way I look at it is that there's, pretty much five processes that are really important. Being able to set goals for yourself for both school and life. Being able to have cognitive flexibility and being able to think flexibly. I think a lot of students we work with have sort of rigid thinking patterns or you would say like maybe a closed mindset. So we work with them in ways to be able to learn new strategies and let in new ways of doing things, study skills, things like that. Mm -hmm. The third area would be this is really key is being able to organize and prioritize. So whether you're organizing materials, organizing time, you know, that's, that's key to being productive and prioritizing, you know, oftentimes kids aren't really taught how to figure out you have five assignments, which one takes priority and how long it takes. So we spend time helping them work that through making plans for how they're going to address their work. The fourth area has to do with working memory And being able to access working memory is very important. Working memory is, and I know you could probably explain this better than me, but it's being able to juggle information. And without it, you can't really solve math problems or use any applied knowledge. So we work with that. And then the fifth one, which is really challenging, especially for some high schoolers, can be self-monitoring and checking. Just really teaching them how to go back over their work, make sure things are complete so that, that's pretty much sort of demystifying what executive functioning is.
0: In comparison to a protocol you have for a child with dyslexia, it seems like for executive function, it's much more complex.
1: It is more complex because there's more pieces to it. And over the years, it's always been a real struggle to find a really good program per se. We, we can really use their materials to teach them strategies. Although now I use a program that I love that I was trained at in Boston called the SMARTS Executive Functioning Program. And it's it's just incredible because it breaks down these processes and gives you sample lessons and ways to actually teach it. It's been really helpful. But yes, it is sort of a broad term and feels harder to narrow down Mm -hmm. what you're doing.
0: Yeah, and in some ways, is it as if you're feeling like more of a coach for somebody?
1: Yeah, I love that you said that because I actually say that a lot to my older students. I think one of the most important pieces with learning in general is metacognition. It's how do I learn? What are my strengths? What are my challenges? And we spend a lot of time with the students figuring those things out strengths, just as much as challenges. And then like, I I'm really big into this whole idea of making everything kind of normalized. It's like, Oh, this is cool. I'm really good at this. I'm not so good at this and I'm going to need practice in the things I'm not so good at. So that is always a really big piece when working on executive functioning with older kids is to really have them see, oh, this is hard for me and that's why I don't turn my papers on time. And that's why I can't do math problems from a recording and I can only do them when I see them written down,
0: right? It seems like there's power in in a label of or a definition of what the problem is, so then you can then just address it. I I think there is. And that's a really it's probably the sweetest part of the
1: work for me is to see the light bulb go off, to see a relief in an older student space, relief in a younger student space, because it really doesn't matter what age they are. If you're, if you're struggling, you know it. And to feel like someone's kind of being able to help you and target you, you know, for the better is incredible.
0: Right. So you do. How long do these interventions take? And do you work with them throughout the kind of their course? If you have a younger child through elementary school, middle and high school or? Where where do you fit into the timeline?
1: That's a question I get asked a lot. And it really does depend on the type of learning difference the child has. I have some students, you know, with dyslexia that we work together maybe a year or two very intensively. And then we move on maybe to reading comprehension because we've spent so much time decoding. Now we need to work on the meaning. So it can be, you know, a short time. It's funny because a lot of my students I've had from like, first through high school and they don't want, they, you know, they love, they love the experience of having someone be able to work with them individually. So sometimes I'll say, okay, we can stop now. And they're like, no, this is like really helping. So it's, it's
0: nice. It really does vary. Right. Well, it seems like, you know, their brain, right. And how they function and it's, it must be kind of a, a sweet relationship too because you kind of understand them more than other people might in terms of just where their struggles are academically or, or otherwise. Do people ever, do you ever see adults or? Actually, it's funny. I had a period of time where I was
1: having many adult referrals for ADD. And I could see that there are some simple things to put into practice that, you know, might feel simple to me or someone else, but But for someone who's overwhelmed by dates or calendars, even just teaching them calendaring, setting reminders, teaching them organization of time and having a sense of time is a big relief. So yes, we do work with adults. We work with college students. A lot of students who had IEPs, which are individualized education plans or some other type of support in high school, enter college and it's a whole new world. So to be able to help them set up a schedule, you know, how many classes are good to take? at one time? And how are we going to work with time management? And so it's something that does definitely carry on.
0: Yeah. And I bet I'm just assuming you're busy during times of transition. So when you kind of help an individual in a certain setting, and then as they get older, I mean, they still have, even though they've worked on it and developed skills, there is still a deficit in being able to really move through the world kind of as a normal person with normal executive functioning. And so I'm assuming when when kids go off to college it's kind of a big time when you maybe need to revisit and kind of reinforce certain skills and kind of redefine what some of the structuring might look like. Yes, very much so.
1: That is a big transition point also when students switch schools and have new expectations and maybe even setting up a form of communication with their teachers where you're in elementary school and your mom or dad is doing all the correspondence. And now you have to learn how to do it, teaching kids to advocate for themselves. Those are really big touch points. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting because I'll get, you know, even in the summers, we'll do some executive functioning or writing like boot camps where we'll do intensives. And the same kids tend to come back year after year and we'll just adjust the material. And they love the like short bursts of time and then they get a lot to carry into the school year. So That's, that's cool too. Yeah.
0: I also wonder, you're talking about schools and changing schools. Are you ever in the classroom?
1: Well, I am less so now more, more when I first started, I, I worked with some private schools in the West side area that actually I would go into the classroom and I was, the parents would actually inspired by the parents, but it was a super great support a little less. So these days with public schools, but I love being able to see the students environment. So when I have a new student in classrooms are usually open to my coming in and watching how they are in the classroom. I think that's sort of an interesting point too, is that one-on-one a student's profile looks one way and then they get in a classroom surrounded by friends and distractions. And it's important for me to see all of the environments. Yeah. Even home, like I even like sometimes going into the home and helping set up a system for studying or kind of making the most of that. Yeah. So it, it
0: seems like you, I mean, this is educating me in terms of a role of an educational therapist too. It seems very broad.
1: It's so broad. And I think I name my company Creative Learning Studio because there's a lot of creativity involved with it. I mean, I've been doing this for so many years that I have all of the knowledge, but I think you really have to have an intuition and a feeling, like you said, a connection with the student to kind of individualize it and then move with them. Because one thing could have been, I'm working with a student currently who always had a lot of difficulty with language processing. And as he's reading these complicated books for middle school, it's just like, even though he's made such progress with expressive language and writing, this is a whole different arena for him. So now he's learning note-taking skills and ways to highlight and reading comprehension.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of nice to watch someone grow over over the educational journey.
1: So rewarding. I feel so fortunate. I love it.
0: What is your role with parents and coaching parents in terms of kind of teaching them how to respond or how to coach their own children. Yeah, that is
1: also a big piece. I also do parent consults. A lot of times when you receive news that your second grader has an attentional deficit or, you know, a learning disability in math or whatever it is, it can really throw you, especially if it's your first child you're dealing with this with. So I kind of love to help. Neuropsychologists are often amazing at interpreting results. And sometimes it's not so easy for them to interpret the results. So sometimes parents just need another way of explaining. And also with my experience, it's nice to be able to share the good news. Like, look, you caught this so young and we can go to, and then help them create a plan. Because I think sometimes we're tempted to throw everything at all the therapies at this child. And we have to remember that can also be too much. Yeah they can shut down and become overwhelmed. Yeah. And then their anxiety becomes sort of at the forefront. So yeah, I really, I really enjoy that part of it, the parent education piece. I speak at schools and to different groups. So that's really nice.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it's kind of really looking for that right balance for the child. It is. One question I wanted to ask is you've been doing this for, for, for a long time. What have you seen? What is kind of, You've talked about attention, and earlier we're talking about kind of the use of screens and attention. What have you seen as becoming more prevalent as time goes on?
1: Okay, well, timing is interesting because, you know, fresh out of all of the Zoom and the COVID and all of that. I mean, I feel like when I first started in education, which was in 1991, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have all of this information at our fingertips. So it was a lot more information oriented. Now, we really want to teach kids how to learn. And I think that's more important than them cramming in facts because they are so adept at getting most facts. I mean, I was hearing from a lot of teachers at a lot of schools that the kids would mute and say to Siri, Hey Siri, who is the president? You know, asking things, (laughs) they know how to get information. I think obviously the other piece is the amount of screen time. And I'm part of This incredible group called the National Day of Unplugging, and they work really do some incredible work about bringing attention and consciousness to how much screen use is actually taking place and coming up with alternatives. And so, I just have seen more and more kids be inside, be on video games. I mean, some of it we have to accept, but I think we have to try to achieve a balance.
0: So is your role with those kids just understanding how screens affect their brain and kind of setting some sort of limits in place in terms of use?
1: Yes. And I, you know, I would say through COVID, my majority of my contact from parents was how do I get them off the screens and how do we, and there was a certain amount, we just had to say, okay, they're doing this now. But I, again, it's kind of back to the metacognitive piece. It's like, Let's talk to the student and see how do you feel before and after you play a video game? What what are your emotions like? How is your energy shift when you're working on your computer? I know this happens to me and a text message pops up. It's like, okay, I'm gone. How do you get back? And even in my office, I have a little chart for rooms for cell phones and I'll charge their cell phones in there. But if they have their laptop, they've got everything hooked up to that. So a lot of it's about bringing awareness. Mm-hmm.
0: combined with limits, but you have to make them understand what it, what, what it is. Right. And do you think, do you notice that kind of more screen time then kind of exacerbates certain yes. issues? And yes, okay. I would say attention
1: span. It's interesting. I remember my student teaching, this really dates me, but my, my teacher that I was working with told me, she remembered when Sesame Street started, how that whole population of kids, that was me, their attention just waned it was so different and i would say now i've seen that just in spades i mean presenting information or new strategies i do probably work a little more quickly than i did years ago because i think their attention is less but mm-hmm. on the other hand you know i love pulling out board games to play for you know an educational game or and they're kind of intrigued with it it's it's like a novelty now so i think those things are important
0: yeah Yeah. I loved hearing about how you approach cases and how educational therapists work and and what that means. Before we end, is there anything you'd like to mention or is there something that we haven't really touched on that you think is really important to the work you do?
1: Uh, I think collaboration is so huge. Not that I'm doing this or any educational therapist is doing it in a vacuum. It's incredible to have the parents support and input you know, I love, I send session notes after every session. We talk to parents. I just We want them to be a part of the process, teachers, principals. And it really does make a big difference because there's, there's also a bigger picture of the student than just a student with learning differences. So I think it's important to make an effort to know the whole child and have everybody involved in their well-being, as right. well as psychiatrists
0: and other allied professionals. Yeah. So you're just kind of part of, you're part of the team. Part of the team. And I love it. It's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. I'll make sure that we have your information about your creative learning studio on the podcast description. So people know how to get in touch with you if they're interested in hearing a bit more about the work you do. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. It was great to be with you. All right. Take care. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and nine offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe.